It is a great blessing, isn't it, to come together today. And many have commented that having the early service and then a somewhat short time later, the afternoon one, fit, fits their thinking very well. And certainly we're honored to be able to gather at any time it might be, day or night, in the name of Jesus. And certainly I know many have plans of travel and other things taking place the next few days. And my family and I would wish upon each of you a very safe journey and a happy holiday season, a Merry Christmas, and all those ways. But for this afternoon, for a few moments, we've already sung about the name of Jesus. And furthermore, what about Bethlehem? Now you noticed in the reading a moment ago, there was a statement made about that little village, that ancient town of Bethlehem. And this afternoon, I thought it would be appropriate to devote some attention, perhaps in a more expanded way, on, on that little place. I hope as we do that, you will be such that your faith will be greatly enhanced. I know mine has been in at least attempting to put the lesson together. I was impressed with some things that had never dawned on me, oddly enough. Maybe that's not true of you, but I think that at least each of us, in regard to our faith, as we study about Bethlehem, it will indeed be a very impressive thing. This opening slide that we'll look at for the next moment, is again merely an intent to bring to our remembrance the thoughts about not only Jesus. And although this morning we cast a spotlight upon that name and the beauty of it and the features of Christmas in relation to it, this afternoon our focus will be Bethlehem, the town. What does the Bible say about that place? And not only that, might you and I notice, I suppose it to be true, if you and I were to take just a random poll, a discussion, if you please, of anybody in the community, and you mentioned Bethlehem, most people likely could tell you that's where Jesus was born. But that might be all they know. Well, this afternoon, you and I, as those who love the Word of God, there are actually a few other things you and I can say about it. And all of it works together weaving a beautiful story about not only the providence of God, but also about the great nature of his book, the Bible. With that in mind, let's come to our next slide and begin our consideration like this. A moment ago was read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And let me call to your attention, if I might, a few of the features in those verses. First of all, in verse number 1 it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed. And immediately to our mind comes the historical figure called here Caesar Augustus to at least assist you somewhat. Please keep in mind, this was one of the well-known Caesars. In fact, you probably remember Julius Caesar, maybe one of the most well-known of the ancient Roman Caesars. This gentleman was his nephew. And so, as you can see at the bottom... In fact, one of the months of our calendar is named for this gentleman. The month of August is named for Caesar Augustus. In fact, the time came that he wanted also an appreciation, a particular thing reminding folks of him, and so in fact that month is named for him. But notice that statement above it. It was in the time frame of his rulership that a decree was sent out in verse number 1 that all the world should be taxed. Now, if you're reading in the King James translation, I know many of us like that translation, but keep in mind the word taxed there is perhaps not the best. That doesn't mean that Joseph and Mary and, yea, all the members of the empire were called upon at a particular season to go and pay some amount of monetary tax. Rather, the word means to be enrolled. 
you and I would perhaps do much better to think about this in terms of a census. The Roman government had dictated at this moment that it was time to take a census. And so all the individuals, at least in this district, needed to proceed to the location as, as designated and therefore to complete a census so that the empire could know who was there, how many taxes could then be collected in later times. Basically, it was a census. But you'll notice beyond that, there's something rather unusual. You and I know here in America, there's a census that takes place every 10 years. Our Constitution, in fact, mandates it. But you and I don't have to go anywhere. We can stay at home and complete a census, but that isn't the way this worked. Because notice immediately verse number 3, "...and all went to be taxed, every one to his own city." In other words, you had to travel to a specific location, a place, if you please, and there is where the official census took place. And so Joseph, together with Mary, his espoused wife, they had to travel somewhere. They couldn't stay at their home place. Although that may again sound unusual to you and me, you and I will see in a moment as to the nature of the history behind that. And that brings us on the slide. Because now immediately coming before us, mention is made in verse 4 of a man named Joseph. Now isn't it interesting that Joseph with Mary, his espoused wife, they were living in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth. And yet as verse number 4 indicates, they journeyed to, came to, traveled to a place called Bethlehem. There's where Joseph needed to go in order for this enrollment, this census to be taken. In our day and time today, you and I again appreciate the easiness with which most of the time a census occurs. This suddenly sounds rather arduous. They were in need of traveling some distance. Have you ever wondered how far is it from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, perhaps to help us somewhat with that, here's a map. Now, the highlighted parts of this, if you'll notice about the center of the top is Nazareth. If you perhaps find it, it's a black dot with a number 10 beside it. So having identified where that is, now let me point out Bethlehem. It's about the very center, the very bottom, the one with the number 17 circled beside it. To put that in slightly different language, to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem was 80 miles due south roughly. In that day and time, a journey of 80 miles was no small matter, and it wasn't a trivial matter either. And yet, here was a man with a pregnant wife traveling that far distance simply for the purpose of this enrollment, this, this census, if you please. Already, the plot seems to thicken because you and I now appreciate why would a husband take his pregnant wife, and the text says she was great with child. The time for delivery wasn't that far away. Why would you travel in such difficult means over very challenging roadways that far for the purpose of a census? But now as you and I, perhaps with completion of that, let's go back to our previous slide. The text goes on to tell us this, Joseph, why are you traveling this distance? Let's note verse 4 again. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And then parenthetically it says, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David. What you and I learn is then in that part of the world, when those censuses were taken and completed, each individual place, of course, was designated by virtue of an ancient house. That is to say, the father or patriarch of a given house. And as the centuries rolled by, that was designated as the place wherein those family members would proceed to complete that census or enrollment. And because Joseph was of the lineage and house of David, he was in need of going to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. But let me say, that is at all. As we close that slide, let's come to the next one. Isn't it interesting that again the text is also rather quick to say in verse 5, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. The angel had already appeared to Joseph as well as to Mary, informing them that Mary was in fact with child by virtue of the Holy Spirit. But it's again interesting that it says that she was espoused. At this point, which was apparently not that long after those angelic visits, you and I notice that still the need was by virtue of the Roman Caesar to complete the census, and so off they went. One final thing. While there, the time for delivery had arrived. She, in fact, delivered the child. They were in Bethlehem. And at that point, the saga finishes. But in another sense, it just opens. I wonder what is meant by that phrase, Bethlehem was called the city of David. Throughout all those centuries, remember David had lived roughly a thousand years before the events we just read. A thousand years had passed. And out of all that time, nothing had changed in regard to designating the city of David. And so it takes us back to the Old Testament. And let's devote much of the rest of our time this afternoon to at least some quick rehearsals of those things. The city of Bethlehem. The word literally means house of bread. And aren't you at least immediately impressed with this fact? Didn't Jesus say, I am the bread of life? John 6.35 and John 6.48. And yet here He was born in a place which itself means house of bread. The fact that it's Bethlehem, let me ask you to notice that quite frankly, there was a rich history to Bethlehem even before Jesus was born there. The Old Testament in fact speak, spoke often about the nature of that place. And let's just wander for a few moments along the corridors of Old Testament history and at least think about a few of these interesting events that transpired there. The first mention of Bethlehem in all the Bible comes in Genesis 35. And on that occasion, Jacob and Esau had already not only parted ways, but they had made up after those interesting events in which Jacob was in Paden Aram. As we arrive at chapter 35, Jacob's favorite wife, whose name was Rachel, she had already borne him one son named Joseph, and yet the time came she again was pregnant with one that would be called Benjamin, and oddly enough, as they were journeying, as they were traveling, her labors became very extensive and it was just outside Bethlehem, just outside this little place that she gave birth to a little boy, but sadly she died in the process. Jacob later in Genesis 48 commented, I buried her in Bethlehem. 
And so immediately to those who were knowledgeable of the Old Testament history, you remember that Rachel, that, that beloved wife of Jacob, was buried there. However, that only begins to, to ask us to note this. One of the judges in the book of Judges, he was of Bethlehem. His name was Ibsen. He was the tenth of the judges. And might I ask you to notice one interesting fact about him. He had a lot of children. Perhaps that by itself is it shocking, but have you ever noticed how many of them were boys and how many of them were girls? Thirty of each one. Now that, my, my I suggest to you, is a little bit unusual. If you had 60 children, I mean, wouldn't it all be unusual to have 40 boys and 20 girls or vice versa? This one was exactly 30 of each one. Isn't it also rather interesting that you and I come to the most famous love story, I suppose, in all of history? Would you consider with me for a moment the book of Ruth? Now, as I, in fact, relate some of this, I, I won't read all of that book, but would you be impressed with this? As the book of Ruth opens, it was set now in the days of the judges. There was a man named Elimelech, and his wife was named Naomi. You recall that they were Israelite people. They dwelled in a place more near the southern part of that land. Have you ever wondered what their hometown was? Elimelech and Naomi lived in Bethlehem. That's where the setting of that whole book is in many ways. And inasmuch as that was the case, we remember there was a terrible famine that had come upon that area. And Elimelech chose to take his wife Naomi and they traveled to a distant place there to survive the terrible severe famine. They traveled to Moab. They traveled across the Jordan River to that setting again on the eastern side thereof. While there, the two boys which they had, those boys were named Malan and Kylian, they married Moabite women. Malan married a girl named Ruth, and Kylian married a girl named Orpah. At this point, as you and I well remember, rather unfortunately, Elimelech dies, Malan dies, Kylian dies, all three of the men in that family pass away. At that point, Naomi makes a decision. Given that the famine in the area of Bethlehem had passed on, she decided to go back home. She at first admonished her daughters-in-law to remain in Moab. Remember, in that day and time, you could raise up a child, and in fact, those two would have had access to any additional sons Naomi would have borne. And she said, I'm too old to have any more children. Each of you go back to your, your father's houses. Orpah agreed to that, but Ruth didn't. In fact, in one of the most telling, one of the most moving, one of the most compelling statements in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, listen to what Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Ruth professed an amazing loyalty, allegiance, and commitment to assist not only in the taking care of Naomi, but in being steadfastly with her throughout the remainder of her days. 
it is with that as a backdrop, those two women proceed then back to Bethlehem. They come back. Naomi returns to that place which she had formerly lived in, and Ruth saw its blessed scenes for the first time. And as she returns, she begins to glean in the field of a man of Bethlehem whose name was Boaz. He lived there as well. Isn't it interesting the thickness of the history so far of Bethlehem? Of course, Boaz falls in love with Ruth. And ultimately, of course, those two are married. As you'll notice near the bottom of that particular slide, Ruth and Naomi, of course, survived in that place. And isn't it interesting that now we can make this observation? Given that now we know that Ruth, as well as Naomi, and that family were in Bethlehem, now we begin to understand why it was called the city of David. Let's complete that history like this. Remember that Boaz, of course, and Ruth, ultimately after they fell in love, they married and God blessed them with a boy, a baby boy whose name was Obed. Obed grew up, and he too married, and he had a son whose name was Jesse. And Jesse grew up and had eight boys, and the youngest of them was named David. To put all of that together, Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. Boaz was the great-grandfather of David. And therefore, when you say then that Bethlehem was the city of David, the reason is because that's where these events of the book of Ruth transpired. That was the city that David's people came from. Aren't you impressed with this history? But yet you and I might notice it continues on like this. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, later on, after, of course, David had grown some, you may remember that Jesse, who was David's father, it was there and said that again he still lived in Bethlehem. All of that comes to a bit of a zenith as we arrive at the book of Micah. Would you please note with me, as you, you may even wish to turn to that book, Micah chapter 5, I'll read verse number 2. So far we have thus learned that in the book of Ruth we have the setting, the backdrop if you please, and that's why it came to be called the city of David. But listen to what the prophet said in Micah chapter 5. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting." It's always been an impressive thing, I'm sure, to each of us to remember that when the time came that Herod made the inquisition of those who were, who were scribes and others, where will the Christ be born? Without hesitation, they said Bethlehem because of this prophecy. God had revealed it, of course, hundreds of years before the event that the one who was the anointed one the one who is the Christ, the one who shall be the ruler of all Israel, who has been literally from everlasting, he will be born in Bethlehem. There is one part of that verse, though, that might be a little unusual. Again, it says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrata. It's at this point, let me suggest to you, there's really something rather amazing about the word Ephrata. It turns out in the land of Israel, there are two cities called Bethlehem. One of them is the one that you and I are so familiar with in that it was the place where Christ was born. 
The other one was Bethlehem in the tribe of Zebulun. The God of heaven was so specific, He detailed which Bethlehem it would be. It's Bethlehem Ephrata, the one in the actual tribe that's not, ben, that's not Zebulun. It's the tribe related to Benjamin and Judah. Aren't you impressed with the history of Bethlehem so far? The nature of how hundreds of years earlier God revealed that this special little village. And back at that time, of course, the thing for which it was known is so very different than today. Today, the town of Bethlehem, which still exists, I might add, is a town that is known worldwide for its tourism. People from all over the world flock there, especially at this season of the year, to take note of supposedly where Jesus was born. There's even a church building erected there. It's called the Church of the Nativity. Fact is, nobody knows explicitly which house Jesus was born in. We learned this morning in the lesson, in fact, He wasn't even born this time of year. But the fact is, as you and I close that slide, aren't we impressed with the history of this place of Bethlehem? The work of our God is fantastic. If God could detail over a thousand years ahead of time what town Jesus would be born in, and He could contrive the circumstances. After all, Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. Why would they travel 80 miles under great duress? The God of heaven knew it would be Bethlehem. It would not be Nazareth. It just so happened, of course, that census by the great providence of God brought them to the right place at the right time. Our God does all things well. He always does. The faithfulness enjoined upon us in the Word of God leads me to some of the statements on this slide. I'd like to interject one other thought. You and I noticed earlier it was for the purpose of enrollment. Now Joseph was the one who, of course, it seems could fill that out. Why did Mary even make the trip? If she hadn't, the child couldn't have been born at Bethlehem. At least not then. Aren't you impressed with, again, God orchestrating those events? In such a way, perhaps Joseph was so concerned about her soon delivery, he required, he insisted that she go. However that worked out, she accompanied Joseph. And it was at Bethlehem that she delivered the Christ child. That city of Bethlehem leads me to note this. Aren't you also interested to re recollect Ruth? We mentioned her a moment ago as we thought back about the city of Bethlehem and that book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman, and yet she took her place in the history of the ancestry of the Christ. Remember, she was the great-grandmother of David. Our God can work such remarkable things. He has plans for you and I, and if we're faithful to Him, He will be more than honored and happy to use us as instruments in His hand. He has illustrated that with Bethlehem, perhaps in like any other ways in all the Bible. A little village through thousands of years, and yet it was the one that He Himself had directed would be the place of the birth, and so it was. God's Word's always true. Many have looked upon the prophecies of the Old Testament, and rightfully so, as some of the strongest evidences and some of the strongest proofs of the inspiration of the Bible. How could minute details written hundreds if not thousands of years in advance come to pass exactly as prophesied? 
we all know the human family. We can't even predict next week in minute detail, not even tomorrow. And yet God could write history before it happened and do so in minute detail. Isn't that faith building? Isn't that so encouraging? Maybe as you and I come near the close of this year and prepare to think about another one, doesn't it remind us we have an anchor in our life? The great God of our heaven and His Word. And oh, what a strong anchor that is. We would do well to, as we ponder the new year, to build upon the nature of that book and to make sure our life is founded fully upon it. Jesus said, the wise man's the one who not only knows those things, Matthew 7, 24, but who has built upon that foundation. It's the foolish man who built his house on the sand, wasn't it? Though he heard the words, he didn't follow them. As you come near the bottom of that slide, to you and I, maybe in reading the New Testament, it looks like Bethlehem is such a small, minute detail. It looks so innocent. I'm reminded of Zechariah 4, verse 10, aren't you? Let none of us ever overlook the day of small things. It wasn't a small thing. That was another evidence that God was working through history. He was bringing the great Messiah into the world, and all of us have been blessed ever since. And today, as those who attempt to live faithfully to His commandments, we realize what great event happened at Bethlehem. But of course, we also know what great event happened at Calvary. Now that was just outside, of course, a very different place. It was Jerusalem. But our Savior was born in one but died in the other. And of course, we memorialize that death every first day of the week. As we close that slide and perhaps turn to this one, I hope we can reach a point of conclusion. And Bethlehem has been the center of the afternoon's lesson, reminding us of the biblical history surrounding it. It will, I suppose, always remind us of the birthplace of Jesus, but its biblical history is much more than that. It is a place that reminds us of God's great providence and His faithfulness to His Word and the nature of His Word in as much as all of its details are in such beautiful harmony. This afternoon, as you analyze your life, and as I do the same for me, that babe that was born in Bethlehem, as sweet and as pure and as innocent as he was, he grew up to become a man, an adult, but he still was pure and innocent, for he never sinned. And he ultimately would give his life, shedding his blood to establish the church. We can be a part of his body. Now, we don't have to make an annual visit to the actual city of Bethlehem. That's not required of us anymore. It was never required of them. But isn't it true that you and I, of course, in His body, can always lift high the banner of His truth and always wear His name with honor and respect and always strive to live faithfully to Him? I submit to you, Bethlehem, is, it's been an interesting study, at least due to its biblical history. Today... What about your life and mine? Are we faithful to the Lord? Are we committed to His cause? And are we excited about what He can do with us and through us in the coming year? Some of the things next Sunday will ask us to perhaps develop that in more detail, but at least for now. What about using Bethlehem as a motivation? If our God can use a little village like that and weave a biblical history well over a thousand years through it, including everything from Rachel all the way to Jesus, 
Can He not take of your life and mine and use it to greatly encourage and exhort His kingdom, to bring about His will? I submit to you that not only can He, but He's promised He will if we will just be His faithful follower. As you examine your life and as I do the same for me, if you would have a need to come forward today to confess error as a wayward child of God, realize that as a peeping congregation, we love you and we would want to help you to make note of anything that we could do with you, including praying to God on your behalf. But if you've never become a Christian, if there would be someone in this audience in that situation, having never yet named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, what better day than today could there be? Jesus, in fact, gave us that plan of salvation. It's merely our wonderful desire to, to honor it, to obey it. Believe in Him. He really is and was the Son of God. Trust in Him with all your heart, Proverbs 3, verse 5. As you do that, repent of your sins. Confess the name of Jesus and be baptized. Everything is ready. That could be taken care of in but a few moments today. If anybody in the audience would have need, let one of our elders or myself know. We'd be happy to study with you, to help you, to work with you. But this song of encouragement is a convenient one. And if right now you'd like to come forward for any of these reasons, we'd invite you to do it. For together we stand and sing.